Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Growing up, I knew that my father was a bad man. But when I reached my 20s, I made a shocking discovery. In 1977, before I was born, my then 19-year-old father strangled a woman to death and buried her body in a shallow grave. Together with my good friend, Beck Day, I'm finally delving into the past to learn more about my father's crime and the people that were left in its wake. I'm Nina Young, and this is My Father, the Murderer.
Journalist Nina Young made a podcast documenting her search for the truth about her father. It's called My Father, the Murderer, and there's a link in the show notes so you can subscribe. Nina uncovered much more than she could ever have imagined about her father, the paternal side of her family, and also about the people he'd victimised during his life, including her own mother, Denise. Denise Young has been subjected to a very particular kind of victim-blaming because she married a man she knew had committed a violent crime. While she chose never to delve too deeply into the details of it herself, she did participate in her daughter Nina's podcast, and they've just released a book together, also called My Father the Murderer, which goes even further in exploring his life and crimes and the impact on those left behind. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Both Nina and Denise Young join us separately today to talk about their impressions of the man in question, Alan Ladd. We'll also talk about the profound impact on their relationship of not talking enough about him for most of Nina's life and then talking about little else for the last two years. We start with Nina and about how she and her mother approached the project very differently way back in the beginning. Look, we came into it from really different directions. Obviously, I didn't really know my father. So for me, it was kind of like discovering a stranger. And for her, it's like, obviously, you know, she married him. She had a child with him. So she had a really different perspective on him to me. And I think some of my research in the podcast kind of changed a lot of that for her. I think she came out of it with a really different view of who he was when she sort of knew him. Gosh, that's really interesting. I mean, she's got major heartbreak associated with this story somewhere along the line. She really does. And I think that she's, um, I think she's only just now working through the trauma of it. I think she's someone who likes to compartmentalise things a little bit and bury things down. So I think now is when she's really actually starting to realise that, you know, what she went through was abuse and it's normal to have feelings about that, you know. It's so interesting that you say that because we recently had a conversation with some uh, detectives from the Sexual Assault Task Force and they were talking about the fact that they oftentimes speak to victims who have taken quite a while to really know that they are, have been victims of sexual assault, for example. Yeah. And, yeah, so that's sort of what I you're talking about. I think it's also like she doesn't feel, I'm sure this is the same with victims of sexual assault, but she always had this feeling like what happened to me wasn't enough to be abuse. Yeah. You know, um, you know, there are people in much worse situations, so I can't complain and I can't feel trauma from that. Yes. I think that there's something about us. Is it women, do you think, that, that there's something about us that makes us want to downplay our trauma and say, oh, but there's always people worse off and... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I do it too in the book. I'm really hesitant to say that any of what happened to me was abuse or traumatic because I know that there are people who have been through so much more. But that's the thing. And there's an old um, proverb that's like, you know, the man who has a broken leg, he can't compare himself to, to the man who's lost his whole family in a car accident, but it doesn't mean his leg's not broken. Very good point. 
Now, for those of our listeners who who haven't heard uh, our first conversation with you or indeed your own excellent podcast, would you mind reminding us, please, of what it is that you're talking about? And they're two different stories. But firstly, could you tell us about your mum's relationship with your dad and what is the abuse that you're talking about? Yeah, so um, my mum was uh, like a young woman who decided to become a tutor at a prison Um, which is an odd choice. But if you knew my mum, it wouldn't be that odd a choice. She's a really lovely lady and she loves to help people. So she decided to um, become a tutor and help prisoners uh, with their HSC. And that is where she met the man who would turn out to be my father. So they actually fell in love in prison um, and she didn't really know what he was in for. She kind of thought it was something violent. It just wasn't something he wanted to talk about a lot. Um, and he didn't actually reveal until they'd been together for quite a while what it was and that he'd actually murdered a woman and he was in there for murder. <clears throat> so that was a big that was a big shock for her and something she had to tum- come to terms with. Um, and then as he was getting out of prison, she became pregnant with me. So things got a little bit more complex in terms of their relationship and her commitment with him. Um, and so then I was born and... Uh, he got out of prison and he was good for a little while and then sort of predictably became violent towards mum and she had to flee from him in the night. With you? With me and my brother, yeah. So you don't really remember any time with your dad? I do. Um, I have one of my earliest memories is the sensation of almost drowning um, which I never really knew what it, what that sort of memory was, but I've got a memory of being underwater and feeling really, like, calm with water rushing all around me. And that turns out I found out when I was doing the podcast that my father had tried to teach me how to swim by throwing me into the ocean um, when I was less than two and um, wouldn't allow anyone to pull me out. So I did almost drown. So that memory is actually a memory. That's the only early memory I have of him, but then I met him again when I was sort of five or six and he came to visit a couple of times. And was the relationship abusive then between the two of you? No, um, I didn't really know him. I So at that point my mum had remarried and I had a wonderful stepfather. That's Pete? Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, he would just kind of come and and go a little bit in in those years and I didn't really even associate him as my father. He was just like I knew he was my father. But he was just like a cool guy with a motorbike. <laughs> you know, and that, at that age I was like, what a cool guy. My dad's got long hair. That's awesome. Um so I didn't really know any of any of that stuff. Um and then mum sort of really cut him out of my life about that point because he was really inconsistent. He said he wanted to visit and he wouldn't show up. Um, and obviously we couldn't have too much of a relationship because she knew he was quite a dangerous guy. So um, at that point, that I haven't really seen him since. But you do say that as you entered your teen years, you often felt angry for reasons you couldn't quite put your finger on. Yeah. So why do you think that was now? Have you been able to sort of trace that? Well, I think it's, I think it's because I sort of, well, I think basically it's it's the weird situation I was born into. Mm. Um, so sort of semi-knowing that story growing up, I knew my parents met in prison um, and I made the mistake of like telling a teacher that once and I've never seen 
such a horrified face on anybody. (laughs) And I just, it made me really feel like an outsider and like I was sort of hiding this secret, um, which was a really uncomfortable and weird feeling. Like I never felt like I fit in with everybody else's families. And then um, things really went downhill for me in my teenage years when um, Alan appeared on Australia's Most Wanted. So I think... I think that was the root of my <laughs> teenage anger. And, like, mm. thinking back, I was like, why was I so angry? I'm like, well, why do you think? Yeah. <laughs> so mm. I was, I think, 13 or 14. I might be mixing up the timeline. But I walked in and, and my mum was watching Australia's Most Wanted and she had to say, hey, your dad's on the run. Mm. What, what had he done then? Oh, manslaughter. Yeah. Oh my God. So he had um he had he had killed a man that he and his son had been staying with. Um, but it was determined to have been like manslaughter and not murder because he had beaten him up, but they couldn't prove that the intention was to kill him. But he was then on the run um for a couple months um around Victoria and New South Wales and then went to prison and mum took in his son who came to live with us for about a year. Um so that was a real upheaval in my teenage years, I have to uh-huh. say. Yeah. Nina, on the book, it says a reckoning with the past. That's how the book's described. Yeah. What was the moment where you decided to speak openly about this and, and do the podcast initially? Well, I was talking to, I didn't tell many people this story because it's just, it's not a quick conversation that you can just sort of have like, hey, my dad's a murderer, by the way. And Well, know. and also because you told the teacher and it was a, obviously a yeah, traumatic there, experience. You so. never know. Like some people you'd tell and they'd be like, oh, Okay, and other people, there would be like a weird stigma, like you could tell that they were then giving you side eye. So I was telling my co-host on the podcast, Beck, she was like, wow, this is is a story that deserves to be told. And I was like, yeah, 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 probably not. (laughs) um, The more I thought about it, and when when I Googled Alan's name at the time, there was no results, like no one knew who he was. And I just thought about like the amount of men like him who are existing like on the outside of of society and just kind of going under the radar. And I thought like they don't deserve to. (laughs) They really don't. Yeah. Um, So I really wanted to tell my story because I don't think it's a story that you hear that often from the children of of these men. Um, But I also really wanted to get his name out there and and start talking about it and, and make people aware of him because I think he's dangerous and if he gets out of prison again, which he might, um, he's definitely still going to be a danger. I think it's really valuable too because the, the children and the family members of offenders are suffering as well and you're not guilty of anything. You haven't done anything. And, and unfortunately, though, you are, can be shamed out of talking and, and, and so mm. I think it's really valuable for that reason. Yeah, and I think that's become that's been more of a problem um, for mum than mm. for me because there's a real stigma around women who are in abusive relationships, yeah. and sp- particularly in her case, people are like, "Well, you met him in prison. What did you expect?" Yep. Um, so I think she's this. She's been really nervous about um, doing these interviews and 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 talking to people because she just is waiting for everybody to shame her, mm. which I think is really disgusting yeah to be honest. it is totally because yeah. she's the victim this is a woman who's done nothing wrong mm. no absolutely and you're right I mean fundamentally she is the victim of a, a violent relationship yeah and a narcissist 
So, you know, a narcissist, um, not diagnosed in any way, but I would bet money that he's a psychopath from everything that I've read. Mm -hmm. And we know that these people are particularly good at choosing their victims. You know, they see someone who is lovely and nice and generous and, and vulnerable and they'll prey on those people and they're really, really good at showing them a side that seems safe and normal um, and hiding and masking the other side of them. What was the response, Nina, to the podcast? Did you get some interesting feedback? Like were you contacted by other people that were in your position having a parent that was a, you know, a yeah. convicted killer? Amazingly, yes. There was one one girl um, who contacted me. Um, her Her father had killed her mother and she was just like we spoke and she was crying and it was really amazing and she was like I just have never I never thought I would speak to anyone else who was in the same situation so she was really really grateful to have that connection I was too but yeah it, it's really resonated from a lot of like women who've been in abusive relationships really really resonated with it and resonated with my mum I feel like more people connected to my mum than to me the response has been great and we actually spoke to more people who've had interest interactions with Alan, um, who more victims of Alan, who's, who aren't quite ready to tell their story yet, but I'm happy to help them when they are. Um, the, but it just really cemented that this guy, there was no period in his life when he was out of jail that he wasn't hurting people. What kind of interactions to the degree that you can share? More spousal abuse, a lot of like child abuse. If you you listen to the podcast, um, you'll hear how he treated my brother growing up, which was like he was tied to a tree and and beaten with a belt, a belt sort of soaked in salt apparently, which I thought and I thought, oh, you know, my brother was a little prone to hyperbole maybe maybe, and he was very young, maybe he sort of exaggerated some of it because it just sounded too horrible to believe. When I spoke to these other victims, the first thing they said was, did he tell you about the belt? So everything he said, Mm. as far out as it sounded, was completely true, which is horrendous. So would you say it's been a positive experience for you, the podcast? Yeah, I think so. It was kind of like therapy, <laughs> mm. except, I mean, I'd recommend actually doing therapy instead, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe both, you know, at least. Yeah. But I'm so glad, I'm so glad that after that awful experience with telling your teacher that this has been not, hasn't been a regretful experience at least. Yeah, I think it's been, a, it's a good time for the book to come out and for the podcast to come out because I think we're in a better place to talk about these issues now than we might have been like a decade ago. And I hope that you might, look, obviously I'm sure that speaking to us will be a good experience for your mum, but I can't imagine that anyone would give her a hard time. I can't, I mean, it's, it's a very... Yeah, you never know. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes journos, they ask some, <laughs> ask some questions mm. that I wouldn't ask, but, you know, someone asked me, um, are you not going to have any more kids because you're afraid of passing on the murder genes? What? Yeah, and I was like, come on, man. <laughs> Oh, my oh, God. Yes. So you never know. That's a strange yeah. question. Good Lord. It's a very courageous then in that case for your mum to have participated in the book, isn't it? Yeah. I gave her a lot of, um, I gave her a lot of outs, but she was, she was keen to do it. Um, and I just hope it's, it's a really good experience for her in the long run. But I guess she's a, she's a special person. Has it been cathartic, do you think, for her? I think so. But I think, it, yeah, like I said, I think it's uncovered a lot 
that she had compartmentalised and didn't want to think about. And I think that she had still sort of painted Alan as a nicer man than he was before I started presenting her with a lot of um, evidence. Like she she didn't even read the original court transcript. Um, she didn't really know the details of the crime. She only knew what he'd said. and it Of was, his first crime before he met her. Yeah, yeah, and it was a thousand times worse than what he had told her. God. Um, so I think that she's she has a tendency to kind of um, bury her head and I'm the opposite. I'm like, tell me everything and then I'll sort out what I need to know from it, you know? Mm. Yeah, I agree. I'm the same. I'm like, I want to know all, the entire yeah. truth and then I can d- deal with it however I'm going to deal with it. But it's interesting how some people don't want to know horrible things, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, we actually re- in the podcast recorded the first time I actually looked at that police report. Yeah, I remember. And we were like, oh, we'll just kind of chat through it. And then I think we had to cut out about 20 minutes of us just sitting there, like trying to talk and trying not to vomit. Like it was really like so much worse than any of us had imagined. We're reading verbatim from the police report here. And just a quick warning that some of the language is outdated and pretty offensive. We aren't using the name of the victim at the request of her family and we've chosen to beep out the name of the witness in the police report. He has since died, but we want to respect the privacy of his living relatives. On the morning of the 29th of May, 1977, a man named walked into Norseman Police Station. I have come to report a murder as it is my duty to do so. A girl has been murdered last night and is buried in the bush somewhere. My son his home. He's in a terrible state and fears for his life. He came home late this morning and was crying and is terrified. He told me that he was in the bush with a native girl and a man called Alan Ladd. The man who witnessed the crime was too disturbed by what he'd seen to go to the police himself. He thinks his own life is in danger as Ladd told him that he would kill him and put him in a hole if he told anybody about it. The police went to the witness's house but struggled to get much sense from him. Very little information could be gained, except that he stated a girl had been murdered and was buried in bushland about a quarter of a mile east of Norseman off the Iron King Road. The police went to the area described by the man but couldn't find anything. So they returned and asked him to accompany them to the crime scene. Accompanied by his father and brother attended at an area of bushland approximately a quarter of a mile east of Norseman and 400 yards northeast of the Norseman Drive-In Theatre and approximately 120 yards north from the Iron King Road. Once there, the shaken man showed police where the crime had taken place. He indicated to Sergeant Short by pointing his hand at a still smouldering campfire and said that the native girl, lad and himself, had built the fire about midnight and had sat in its warmth and drank a bottle of wine. Further 10 yards east, a set of upper false teeth were found on the ground. You stated that they were his and he had vomited them out when Lad killed the girl. Oh. He then pointed to a small mound of earth about seven yards to the west and said, that's where her clothes are buried. Again, from the same spot, he pointed to the southeast and said, you'll find her over there. I won't go with you. I can still hear her screaming. The police found the woman buried in a shallow grave. After police attended the crime, Alan was arrested and confessed to the murder. 
After reading the police file and the coroner's report, I had to stop myself from throwing up. Oh, I, got, I need a minute. Wow. I don't know how to, I don't know how to even take that in. That's, that's how I'm feeling. Like I've read bad things mm. in my life, but before I've read this, I don't think I would have described him as evil. I think I would have said, you know, we're all multifaceted and we all have things that make us the way that we are and we all have reasons for being the way that we are. But when you read that he could do something like that to someone, all that comes up in my mind is that's pure evil at work. I guess it's a protective thing, isn't it, when people don't want to know stuff? It's just a form of self-protection. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think is next for you career-wise? I mean, having done, this is such a huge project for you and it's so personal and I'm sure it's changed a lot. I mean, changed everything for you personally, professionally. It's been successful, very successful, which is kind of weird as well because it's your personal story and, yeah, you know, it's weird, isn't it? I'll tell you what's the weirdest is like when you meet people you don't know mm. and they're like, I listen to your podcast. I know, right? Yeah. Like yours is about you. Like it, they listen to my podcast is one thing, but listening to yours is like, I've listened to your podcast and I know all about your dad, your mum. I know, yeah. Your half-brother. So I went, like I was camping recently and my, my friend's friend showed up and she's like, oh, I haven't met you, but I've listened to your whole podcast. And I was like, oh, cool. Maybe we can talk about your childhood trauma later. Yeah. <laughs> so where do you go from here? Well, I'm working on the I Swear I Never podcast at the moment with Beck from My Father the Murderer and I'm still working at Kidspot. Basically, I just love telling stories. So I'm I'm really working on trying to help other people tell their stories and giving them the same sort of platform because there are plenty of stories that are just as important as this one, but people just don't have the, either the skills to tell them or the platform to tell them. So for me, that's a big focus, helping other people tell their own stories. I don't know if it's for everyone. You need to be you need to be prepared for any possibility. So you need to I mean you need to be prepared that everyone's going to hate it or think you're an idiot. That's a possibility always. Um you need to be prepared that it's going to no one's going to listen to it. You need to be prepared that everyone's going to be listening to it. It's kind of you don't really know what's going to happen and once it's out there, it's out of your control. That's the other thing. I would I would warn people about I was lucky to have the amount of control that I did in telling my own story, but once that's put out into the world, anyone can do anything with it, really. So you have to be prepared for that. Never read the comments. We know that. Never. <laughs> I never read the comments. I never read any article that anyone wrote about me. I never watched anything um, when I was doing the television interviews for the podcast. Didn't watch a single one of them. Beck told me that's what Johnny Depp does. So I was like, I'll just be Johnny Depp. Just never going to watch my own stuff. <laughs> because that way, like, you know what your version of you is and then beyond that it doesn't really matter and you just got to have more time for the people that love you thank you to patrons hannah eels matthew kelly tessa allen liz doherty joe caitlin mears l bell and belinda soderquist hi This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There are two women at the heart of Nina Young's telling of her father's story. One of them is the Aboriginal woman that he killed in 1977. She's not named in the podcast or in the book because that's the way her family wanted it to be, but her story is told and she's very much honoured. The other woman is Nina's mother, Denise, who joins us now to tell her story, beginning with why she chose to participate in the podcast and in the book, despite her fears about what people would ask and say about her. I always thought, oh, I'll tell her when she's older. And then when she got older, it was just never the right time. Uh, But because she became a journalist and was incredibly good at finding things out, she found out about what he'd done and came to me with the the story. And then um, she kept it to herself, I think, for about another 10 years until she was a journalist. And at that point, she decided she needed to tell this story I didn't want anybody else to tell my story, I suppose. It's confronting. It's it's a bit shaming. You know, you feel as though you're opening yourself to community opinions about you. But at the same time, I think it's important not to be ashamed because we didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't us who committed the crime. It wasn't us who couldn't survive the marriage it was we we are innocent in a way and we felt I think Nina certainly feels that it's important for people who could be seen as victims to tell their story so I guess that that's there but I certainly feel um nervous it's a broader topic isn't it about abusive relationships and coercive control Tell us what it was like when you had to flee your relationship with Alan. Yes. Look, um, because I had um, two children, one one with him, I gradually saw that his behaviour was becoming more and more controlling, particularly towards the children. And I had this sense that they were going to be that I probably was also going to be eventually in danger. So I decided that I had to leave. 
I was lucky that I had a house that I half owned. So I had some money. I had family in Sydney. I had friends who helped me get away. In fact, the friends, the girlfriends I had were fantastic. You know, the last day before I left, we had to go around and do all sorts of things. I was selling a house. We had to clean the house. I had planned to buy a car, but we decided I couldn't do that. I didn't have enough safe time. And my friends got me on a midnight flight out of Perth to Sydney. With the two kids, I had a dog in a box. I had all kinds of things. We had to get out quickly because his behaviour had become much, much more threatening and violent. And um, I was just, I think I was, I was lucky to have all those elements coming together, the friends, the family, the money, the self-worth as well, the sense that I didn't have to live like this and nor did my children have to live like that. And so the sense that we needed to go and we needed to rebuild what felt like a very um, shattered existence at that point. I think the fact that I had so much more of the power in the beginning of that relationship meant that I didn't come under coercive control at first. He worked more at getting the children under that sort of relationship. But the fact that there was no mobile phones was terrific, you know, in those days. When I look at what women go through now with texting and with stalking through being able to find their positions at any time in the world, it's just horrendous now. It wasn't nearly as subtle then it was if anything it would be an open you know brutal force sort of coercive control when you met Alan I mean you were obviously an intelligent woman who wanted to do good you know you wanted to help yes (laughs) I'd gone to Perth as a tutor in theatre at Curtin University and early on in the time that I was there I'd I didn't have a, heaps to do. I did later on, but at the first, in the first weeks. And I saw a sign at the university asking for volunteers to teach literacy in the community. And I thought, oh, I could do that one day a week or something. So I put my name down and they called me up and said, would I go into Fremantle Prison? And I guess, you know, because I'd been an actor, I was a bit keen on drama and, you know, the whole thing of the secrecy of it all. I said, oh, okay. They said I'd be teaching a Turkish prisoner English, and I thought, well, I've done a lot of English teaching. That'll be fine. When I arrived, it wasn't a Turk. It was this man, Alan, who was Aboriginal and who seemed very nervous as well, and he was doing his um, the equivalent of his HSC um, through remote learning. And so I started going in once a week to teach him English and to help him with his essays and all sorts of things. It was in the old women's prison at Fremantle. So you went in, you went through the horror of the concrete yards and the old stone buildings, and you went into this space that had been sort of done up with carpet on the floor and there were just, in each little cell, there were like just two prisoners sitting and you were ushered in there. And one of the two prisoners was Alan and the other one used to absent himself the minute I arrived, go make a cuppa or something, a brew. And there were prison officers seated at the end of the corridor who'd wander along every so often and look in all the rooms to make sure everything was fine. And he was a very intelligent, very sharp, person who clearly, even though he'd left school at about 13 years of age, had enormous potential, I thought. And so that's how it began. I'd gone to Perth with another man and um, this 
burgeoning relationship with Alan broke the other one up. So he came back to Sydney, uh, left, and I was left with my relationship with Alan, which went on while he was in prison for four more years. So he was a model prisoner. He And I thought, you know, he'd come out, he'd go to university, that's what he was planning, and we'd build this this new life where he put behind all the horrible past that he disclosed to me, although he never told me early on what he'd done. I didn't find out the full details of the crime until Nina found them out 12 years ago. But he gave me little bits and pieces, you know, and assured me that it would never happen again because he now had control of his temper. He had everything, really had everything waiting for him, going for him. So I I believed him. Because I was an actor and I was part of the kind of drama world, everybody was up for anything. (laughs) You know, they all took Alan to their heart. You know, somebody played squash with him, said they never let him, never wanted to let him lose because they were a bit nervous. Um, So people, they joked about it. And there was a real, because he had a good sense of humor. I mean, he could be a charming man, obviously, like so many of these guys. But people were generally really, really supportive. And even looking back, I went back to Fremantle probably two years ago now, I think, and went to see some of the friends who helped me get away. And they still had nice things to say about Alan and about, you know, how they were hopeful for that relationship. So generally, I didn't have a lot of victim blaming at the time. I think since I've come back home, there's a sense that I don't tell people if I feel they wouldn't understand. So I live in a fairly middle-class world where sometimes I think, what if I told them? (laughs) And then I think, nah, I don't want to go there. There was one person, just one person who, and I think he was the parole officer when Alan was being given parole, on the grounds that he was marrying me and, you know, we are going to have a family and He was going to go to uni and all these things. The guy said to me, I'd give it five years or something maximum. And I said, what? He said, well, you know, given the crime. And I should then have said, tell me more. But I didn't. And he didn't. And so I I can understand how Nina would think that is really weird because she has been able to find out so much more than I ever knew what changed or what were some of the red flags that maybe came up for you in the relationship where you thought, I'm not safe? First of all, he never went to university. He got his university entrance. He went once and he said, oh, no, I'm never going back there. They're all, um, they've all got nappy rash, I think was the expression. (laughs) So he made one visit to the campus of Murdoch University and never went again. He then got offered various kinds of jobs. He was for a while working as a flower delivery person. So working for a florist, and that lasted a little while until I think on St. Valentine's Day in about 1981, he got so overwhelmed by all the orders that he ended up throwing the leftover ones at the end of the day in the sea. So that was the end of that job with the florist. And then after that, there were no jobs. There was just sort of roaming about and hanging about and kind of watching me and trying to impose his will on me so that he started to say things like, if my son was not home, where is he? And I'd say, oh, he's gone to a friend's house. And he'd say, was I asked? Did you ask me? 
And I'd say, no, I, you know, it's just, it's just a friend's house. He's staying over. And he'd say that I was trying to cut his balls off. That was a common expression that he used. So gradually the pressure for him to be involved in every decision grew greater. I was trying to be both mother and father to two kids. I was trying to work at night. Nearly all the work was at night. And then I got a job as the theatre and education team director. So I was also directing plays in the daytime, which were going into schools. So I just sort of felt like I had to earn money because clearly he was not going to be any kind of provider. So yeah, I was very, very stressed. But you know, at the time you just do it because that's what you've got to do. And I really realised probably after he'd been out for about a year that things were not going to get better and um, probably much worse. And at that point, I think I started to plot how I was going to leave. Uh, eventually, I, I put the house that I half owned onto the market and I, I bought, um, I got a car that I was going to drive across the Nullarbor with the kids in it because I had a dog and I didn't know how we we're going to bring the dog back. That concept of safe time for women when they are trying to plan and flee a relationship, I mean, that that's a big question for women, isn't it? Because that's often the most dangerous time for them. Absolutely. And that's the time when he grabbed me by the throat when I said I was going to leave and held me up against the wall. And I, I went into a, a real, um, I thought, well, this is it, you know, this might be the end. Um, so I just went kind of passive and quiet and mercifully he didn't... Um, keep on but I think it would have happened I think had I stayed that that's what would have happened but I was very lucky that I think the night before we left I was staying with a girlfriend because I was already worried about our safety and it was my son's ninth birthday party and because I'm such an idiot I invited him to come as well and he whacked me really hard across the face so that I I kind of almost fell down and screamed. So the whole neighborhood woke up. You know, I can just remember all these blinds going up and lights going on all around. And um, my girlfriend gathered all the children from the birthday party onto her veranda and got an axe. So she was ready. And then I, when I got inside, she said to me, you're leaving, you're going, we're, we're getting you out of here tomorrow. And she was the one who just squired me around all day. We, we cleaned the house. We, we did everything in that one day. And I couldn't have done it. I didn't have the strength to have done it on that one day. So it was fabulous. I, I feel like I had these, I had two, two friends who were just rocks for me, guardian angels. <laughs> uh, you invest an enormous amount in a relationship like this. You put huge hope, huge optimism, huge love, and you try to make a family that works. And then when it all starts to fall down, there's bits of it that you're still clinging to. You know, he would want to come to my son's birthday party, uh, and he, he did. But afterwards, he made my life um, more difficult. Probably within a year, I got back with the, with the guy I went to Perth with, with the same man that I had left to have a relationship with Alan. That was really nice, and we've been together now for 35 years or something, 36 years. <laughs> um, certainly... Yeah, no, he's great. He's been great. He really has been fabulous for me. So, um, and, and I hope I've been good for him too. <laughs> yeah, it has been wonderful. 
Thank you to our guests, Nina and Denise Young. Don't forget there's a link to My Father the Murderer, the podcast, in the show notes, and the book of the same name is available now. Thank you to patrons Beth Noble, Alison Briggs, Amy Woodbeck, Paula Fairbeck, Leslie Handler and Sarah Woods. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. 
They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.